This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 8. We'll look at the entire psalm today. Nine verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, to have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that through it you would magnify your greatness, reveal yourself to us as the great and mighty God, the God whose name is excellent in all the earth, the God who has all power and has made all things and yet has seen us, though unworthy and ill-deserving as we are, to draw near to us and to love us and to give us a special place among your creation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what makes you feel very small and insignificant? We all have things. We all experience this feeling of being small and insignificant in this world. Maybe there's a place you go, location that you find to be beautiful and breathtaking. Uh, Heidi and I once went, when when I was in seminary, with some friends from the seminary to the Grand Canyon. It's quite a place, something to see. The pictures don't do it justice. If you have the opportunity to go, you should go someday. Definitely worth seeing. It's just so big. It's so deep. It's miles across, almost a mile deep. There's so many different rocks, layers of rocks, rock formations. We got to see the sunset over it. It very much is a place and very much is a thing that declares the glory of God. Other things declare the glory of God to us. Think of the stars, think of the skies. We had another opportunity a couple weeks ago to see the northern lights here, and they're really something to see. You have all the lights in the sky moving around, pulsing around, dancing around. It doesn't even look real. It looks almost otherworldly. 
or you just look out at all those stars in the night sky and there's so few of them that we can even see. If you get a telescope, you can see more. And then there's, we know there's many more beyond even what we're able to see with all our current instruments and scientific equipment of the stars in the universe. And then you think about those stars and they may be suns with their own solar systems and planets. And there's just so much out there we can't even see, don't even know exists and could never even begin to hope to grasp. The universe is so big it's so intricate, and we can't even begin to wrap our heads around it. Or think of the human body. Think of how we have all these different parts working together to do exactly as they're made to do. Everything in our body in its place with its proper function. And if even the slightest thing were missing or wrong, we wouldn't be able to live. And yet God has formed us in such a way that we can live. And this too declares his glory and his excellence and his wisdom. Now I mentioned all these things that can make us feel very small, can make us feel very ignorant and insufficient. And we may have this feeling sometimes, but more often than not, it seems we live in an age that is characterized by arrogance. Much of society is built around the idea that we are autonomous beings. We get to do what we want. We get to be in control of our lives and shape our futures, and we can solve whatever problems the world throws at us. There's a famous poem called Invictus that if there is a creed for our modern age, this is it. The most famous line from that poem says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, as Christians, we at least know in our heads this is not true. We know that our souls belong to God. Um, but that doesn't stop this thoughts or these ideas even subconsciously from creeping into us that we start to think that we've got everything under control and that we're large and in charge. And yet, when we are honest and when we take a step back to reflect on who we are in light of God and the things that he is and the things that he has made, we cannot shake our smallness and our insignificance. When we come to Psalm 8, we find David reflecting on the glory of God. And as a result, the smallness and insignificance of man. But then we also see David acknowledging and reckoning with the fact that despite all of this, God shows man such favor, such grace, such love in giving him a privileged position among creation. I want to reflect on the realities set forth in this psalm in four points. First, we see the majesty of God, verses 1 and 2. We see David in various ways present and reflect on God's glory as revealed through what he has made and what he does. And second, we see the meekness of man in verses 3 and 4. In light of this great and glorious God, David asks a very natural question. What are we in comparison? And third, we will look at the ministry of man in verses 5 through 8. Not only does God regard us and think of us, small and insignificant as we are, but he gives us a unique place of honor and glory among his creation. Though even this points us to greater realities, the realities of our Lord Jesus Christ. And fourth and finally, we will return, as David does at the end, to the majesty of God. 
in verse 9. So those are our four points, the majesty of God, the meekness of man, the ministry of man, and then turning back again to the majesty of God. So first we look at the majesty of God for the first time in verses 1 and 2. And we see uh, David declaring the glory and the majesty of God's name. Now in our day, in our culture, we don't put a lot of stock in names. You can see this now and that a lot of the names that, you know, new babies are being given, they're names that kind of seem just made up. They don't really carry any significance in the, at all. And some of them are even difficult to spell and pronounce and things like that. Historically in the world, names have carried meaning, though we've lost that. You might even now, if you ask your or if you asked why your parents gave, if I asked you why your parents gave you the name that they did, you might not even know. And if you do know, your name may not have a lot to do with you. My name is Andrew. It's a good biblical name, but it's derived from the Greek andros, meaning strong and manly. So how much does that really have to do with me? <laughs> Wonder sometimes. In fact, I found out only a couple years ago that I was given the name Andrew after the great American philanthropist Andrew Carnegie. My father really admired him and decided to name me after him. I didn't even know that until fairly recently. But God's name is a bigger deal than our names. Because in God's name is found all of his powers, perfections, attributes, and glory. And this psalm actually introduces God by two names. There is Yahweh. If you're looking in your English Bible, you notice the first Lord is the all caps, and that's always a to show that this is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And then there's the lowercase Lord, and this is Adonai. So, why these two names? Well, Yahweh is from the Hebrew word for being. So to call God by this name is to acknowledge him as the God who is. Our God is a living and being God, unlike the gods of the nations, the idols of the nations who are dead and lifeless and non-existent. But because this is God's covenantal name to invoke the name of Yahweh, also is a reminder that God is faithful to his people and faithful to his covenant with them. So our God is Yahweh. But then also here he is referred to as Adonai, the Lord, the ruler and owner of all men. In this dual naming of God at the beginning of this psalm, David is firmly declaring who God is and what authority God has. In God's name we see all that he is and all that he owns, which is everything. And his name is Majestic. Now, it's not merely majestic to David or to Israel. No, God's name is majestic. It is excellent in all the earth. His name is to be praised in all the earth. God's glory is revealed in his name. His name is to be revealed and to be made revered and to worship everywhere. Now, all on earth know God by his creation and should praise him for this. We see this in places like Romans chapter 1, where God's glory revealed in creation is sufficient to leave man without excuse. But the earth is not enough. David says that God has set his glory above the heavens. 
above the skies, the space, sun, moon, and stars. Because the skies, the heavens are not enough either. Note how it doesn't say that he set his glory in the heavens. He set his glory above the heavens, upon the heavens, beyond the heavens. The glory of God's name is not contained to the heavens or anything else in this creation any more than it is contained in the earth. It is bigger than that. It is more powerful than that. It is beyond that. His glory is beyond what we can describe or comprehend. To use a theological term for this, God is transcendent. He is above and beyond and outside of his creation. As the theologian Herman Bovink notes, in Transcendence, we see the God of the Bible set against some false ideas. First, we see him set against pantheism. This is the idea that everything is God. Everything is some piece, some fragment of God. So things like trees and animals and the earth and the stars, they're all just a little bit of God. God is somehow a part of them. A lot of not only ancient paganism, but modern vague spirituality reflects this. People will say things like, I see God in this, I feel God in that, uh, talking about the things of creation. But God is transcendent. God cannot be contained in his creation. He is above and beyond his creation. Now, God's transcendence also opposes any kind of polytheism where there are other gods, where there are multiple gods. So the pagan religions that worship things like a sun god and a moon god and a harvest god and so forth, or even things like Mormonism that teach that you can become a god if you do all the right things in your life. None of that can stand. Because God is transcendent, there is no other gods to be found within this creation or anywhere else. Creation cannot contain God, it cannot be God, and though it reveals God, none of it compares to God. In verse 2, we see not only does God have all this power and majesty, but he can draw on power and majesty from unlikely places. David writes about how even infants are a testimony to this power and glory of God. We're not just talking about children old enough to speak. He uses the word here for nursing children, for babies. If they're too young to eat, they're generally too young to speak. But just their being and their living and their growing and their thriving is a testimony to God's greatness. Because God made them. But then David turns to reflect on God's enemies in the latter part of verse 2. Even the strongest enemy of God is so pitiful and weak compared to God that God could, with infants, confound and destroy them. Now, Calvin wrote in a time in history when the church was being persecuted in many ways and violence was done against it. Calvin wrote, as it, it is as if the prophet had said God needs not strong military forces to destroy the ungodly. Instead of these, the mouths of children are sufficient for his purpose. Now these words from verse 2 are quoted by Jesus when Jesus, in Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, that first Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was greeted by that great and worshipful crowd. 
Now, in that chapter, the priests and the scribes, who should have known the worship of God best, we've seen other accounts of this as we've been working through John, but in Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, they were indignant that children would worship Jesus. But Jesus there quotes Psalm 8-2, making the point that God is able to make and find and have worshipers wherever he pleases. He is from the stones able to raise up children for Abraham. Even as the Jewish system of worship in that time had lost sight of God in exchange for legalism and power and self-righteousness, God could and did raise up a people, a worshiping community, a church, from the weak, even from among the children. God can and will prevail even when his people are at their weakest and smallest. With even these, the enemies of God can and will be silenced. So we have seen God's majesty in our first point, but now we turn to our second point in verses 3 and 4, the meekness of man. So David's reflection on God's glory causes him to reflect on himself. This God who made the heavens and the earth, all the billions of stars and all the things even beyond our possible reach or knowledge or understanding. This God who can display his power and might even through the infants and small children. In light of this, we get the big question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Now, this is not a question we ask enough in our day. We are very quick to praise the accomplishments of mankind in this world. I mentioned earlier that poem Invictus, the creed of our age, I am the captain of my fate, the master of my soul. Most people functionally believe some version of that. Or just as another example, I mentioned our trip to the Grand Canyon. On that same trip, we paid a visit to Hoover Dam. On top of Hoover Dam, they have a monument to those who built the dam. And all over this monument is statements and words about man's accomplishment, how great mankind was to build this dam and to subdue nature in the way that he did. Now, ironically, the dam barely works because of the severe drought in the southwest. There's not enough water for it to do what it was purposed to do. Even in our greatest accomplishments, mankind is severely limited. Our greatest works, our greatest plans can be laid to nothing. And even David, who himself was a great warrior and a mighty king, is forced to reckon with this. He's forced to ask, what is man? In light of God's creation, his immutable power, his providence, his rule and governance over all things, what even are we? We're so small. We're so weak. We're so insignificant. Why would God even care about us? And yet God does care about us. We'll see this now in our third point. After the majesty of God and the meekness of man, we now turn to the ministry of man in verses 5 through 8. Now, when I say ministry here, I'm not talking about particularly Christian ministry like what I do as a minister. I'm talking about a more general sense. You could think of how many governments have ministers of certain tasks or functions. You might have like a minister of defense or a minister of trade or whatever other part of the government there is. So these are people that 
are below the king, they work for the king, but are generally exalted above others. And this is the sort of position that God has given us, as we see in verses 5 through 8. In verse 5, we see that God has made us a little lower than the angels. Now, the word for angels here is Elohim, which can also mean God. Both are true. Man is in a unique place just below God and just below the angels. When this passage is cited in Hebrews chapter 2, there it talks about the angels. One of the points the author to the Hebrews makes is that Jesus is greater than the angels, though he made himself for a time lower than the angels. But here in Psalm 8, and it is proper to do so, many commentators and translations here do render it as God. But either way, the point is made. Man stands in a special relation just below God in the heavenly realm, but over the rest of creation. God bestows this privileged place on man despite his weakness and limitation. We've already looked at the transcendence of God and how he is above and beyond creation and our comprehension, but here we see another aspect of God, his imminence, how he is near to us, how he is close to us. And just as before, recognizing the transcendence of God protects us from errors, recognizing the imminence of God protects us from other errors. For one, it protects us from deism. Deism in general is a view that God is distant, he's impersonal, he's not really here, he's not really interested in us. They'd acknowledge that God exists, but he essentially just winds the world up like a clock, lets it run on its own, and leaves it behind. God's imminence also is set against atheism, any sort of denial that God exists at all. No, we must maintain that God is great, and he is glorious, and yet he is near to us. He has come to us. He condescends to us. He covenants with us and reveals himself to us. God has not only made us with this special place, but he has crowned us with glory and honor. All the things God has made, only man is created in the image of God. Man was made as a minister, a deputy to the king. David talks about the extent of this domain that God has given man. He says that God has set all things under his feet. Man was given this dominion over the other creatures. We've seen this dominion mandate as we've been working through Genesis. It was there at creation. It was there after the flood. It keeps coming back. Now, the fall has corrupted, in some ways, this special place man occupies. We still have bits and pieces of this original glory, but it is marred and stained by sin. But despite this fall and sin, God did not leave us. David is writing from this side of the fall, and yet still acknowledged that God had given man this dominion over all of creation. Out of his love, out of his favor for us, we still have this position of power and privilege, this ministry, this task of ruling over the earth, even as small and insignificant and now sinful as we are. But even that is not the end of God's favor and blessing to us. God favored us in creating us the way he did, but he favors us again in our redemption. I mentioned before the use of parts of Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2 to describe the work of redemption in Christ. Let me read for you Hebrews 2, 5 through 8. 
For he, that is God, has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, and then here quoting Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. But then the author says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, under Christ, he has left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So there is the this world glory of man and having dominion over creation, but it's not the ultimate goal because man is fallen and sinful and condemned to die. So what had to be done about this? Well, God the Son entered into creation, made himself lower than the angels, became lower than his rightful station as God, taking on, the, taking on humanity, taking on the form of a humble servant, coming not as a strong-armed king to reestablish obedience and order, but coming to suffer for the redemption of his people. But then we see in Hebrews 2.9 that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. Now, he already was due and deserved this glory and honor for being God, for being the Son of God. But now he has it twice over because of his suffering and death. Because by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. And in doing this, he brings many sons to glory. So Christ adopts us. He saves us from this fallen world and from our own sins. It is not only that God has made us with this special place and position, gave us all the good things of this world and of this life, but in Christ we are redeemed and we are delivered for the life to come. We don't yet see everything as subject to Christ. We won't in this world, but in glory we will. So what are we to do with this information? To know that there is this great and glorious God, and yet despite our weakness and smallness and even our sin, God has come near to us, both in our creation and now in our redemption. But we can only do what David does yet again in verse 9, our very brief final point, a return to the majesty of God. We end where we started. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. All things are all that can be done in light of these glorious realities of God's majesty and creation, his providential rule over all things, and his love and his favor for us is to praise him, to declare the excellence of his name in all the earth. This does happen, and it will happen. In Revelation 5.13, we're given a picture of glory where every creature in heaven and on earth gives glory and honor to Christ. And they say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. This glory given to God is the same glory given to the exalted Christ who has saved us from our sins and delivers us from this world and into the world to come. So we have seen in this psalm a call to reflect on God's greatness 
but also his favor to us, weak and insignificant as we are. So what about you? Do you consider God this great? He has not only made you, but given you such a place in this world. And not only that, but that Christ has redeemed you by his blood. Christ came into the world. He took on that form of a humble servant. He lived and suffered and died to save sinners. But he has now ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father where all glory, honor, and power are his. And Christ offers life and salvation, not just for now, but for eternity to all that would repent of their sins and believe in him in faith. For those of you who do belong to Christ today, do you give him the glory and praise that he is due? Are you in awe of his transcendence and yet comforted and assured by his eminence? Do you desire to see his name be great in all the earth? Do you desire God's name to be great where you live, where you work, where you study, wherever else you may find yourself? May all of our lives be a sacrifice of praise, of loving God, of loving others, not because we are good or powerful or large and in charge, but because our God is great. and We desire that his glory be made known. Let us pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you for how you've revealed your glory. We thank you that though you are great and glorious beyond anything we can know and understand and grasp, you have drawn near to us. Most of all, you have drawn near to us by our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who has redeemed us from our sins. I pray that all here would have saving faith in him and that they would speak of him and proclaim him and bring glory to his name. And everywhere we go and all that we do, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.